developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. So our podcast is called Right and Wrong. Are these your notes? These, <laughs> these are your notes about what we're going to say. What does I it say? It would be a good. <laughs> I didn't even get to idea. Okay. Maybe I can just ask you the question. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's going well. It's going really well. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Right and Wrong podcast. I'm Emma. And I'm Jamie. And just before we introduce today's guest, um, just to let you know, this will be one of my last podcasts, unfortunately, for a while, um, because I have so much going on with other projects at the moment. Um, but you will be pleased to know that you have the wonderful Jamie to take you through the rest of our interviews for the rest of time. That's me. <laughs> That's for him. For all eternity. Exactly, for all eternity. <laughs> and, um, you know, if Jamie lets me in the future, um, I might jump in and out now and again, Um in a few interviews and hopefully be interviewed one day Jamie you never know that would be great yeah if when your book comes out exactly you never know but thanks it's been so like fun to do and to speak to everyone so um it is really upsetting but um but hopefully I'll get to jump in now and again so without she'll be back, she'll be back you know exactly <laughs> she will <laughs> exactly um but without further ado Jamie um would you like to introduce our wonderful guest today I would, yes. Today, we are joined by full-time editor and, as of this year, published author, Susan Ferber. Hello, Susan. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here today. Oh, thank you for coming on. Let's talk about, first things first, your debut novel, The Essence of an Hour, which came out this year. Tell us about it. Yes, so it published in February by a small um, independent press called Valley Press uh, based up in Yorkshire. And it is a historical novel. Um, It's set in the 1940s in upstate New York, um, which is where I'm from originally in America. And it is the essentially a coming of age story about a young girl named Lily Kerrigan and the year that she is 18 going on 19. And that sort of summer of 1941 before America joined the war. She's just finished high school. She's about to go off to university and she and her best friend have parallel um, great summer romances, which uh, end, ends essentially in tragedy. So 10 years later, uh, an older Lily is looking back and reflecting on what happened and trying to see her place in that narrative and understand if her actions directly led to the consequences um, or she, you know, how culpable is she for what happened to her, to her friends. Wow. Amazing and intense. Really intense, <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> fabulous. How and um, how did the book come about? Um, what inspired you to write? Um, so I actually wrote the first draft when I was nineteen, and oh, wow. I yes, so I was um sent home from university for a week because I'd come down with mono or glandular fever, as is better known in this country. And like any normal human being, once I was recovering and sitting up in bed, I decided I wanted to write a novel. 
I had been having some ideas float around in my head for quite some time um, for this story. And I knew I wanted to write a, a novel about uh, a female friendship that is uh, quite sort of competitive. It's quite twisted. Um, and I had read a book by Edna O'Brien called The Country Girls, mm-hmm. which it just changed the way I saw writing and, you know, what, what co- kind of stories could be told and how you could mirror um, a loss of faith in the Catholic Church with a loss of innocence. So that spoke to my own personal situation. And I, I don't know if it's because I woke up in a delirium. I, I had the first line. <laughs> I don't know how it came. Um, but I had the first line and I heard this heroine's voice and I just started writing it. And I understood the way I wanted it to work from that time as well, that it would always be that dual narrative of looking back 10 years and, you know, quite heavy foreshadowing throughout where she's, she's trying to come to terms with what has, what has happened. And so that was, as I said, that was always built into it. And I, I knew the ending. So the first line and the last line have never changed. Uh, a lot, obviously, otherwise has changed. One of the biggest components being that I wrote that when I was 19. And sure, I could have, you know, the 19-year-old voice sounds quite authentic, I suppose. But when she's supposed to be reflecting in her late 20s, that voice sounded eerily similar to the voice of 19 still. So it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't, um, you know, it didn't have that, that emphasis of, of detachment or of, you know, sort of false maturity. So rewriting it then in my mid to late twenties, I was able to bring in that, that layer, but I was really glad that I had written it at 19 because I think you, you, you lose the vocabulary that you use at that age. You lose the immediacy. You don't, even your mind shifts. Um, yeah. I think you become slightly less of a selfish person and solipsistic, but you you have a way of framing the world that is just so different, even from your early twenties. Um, so I, I did go back to those early drafts and look and see how is she thinking? Is that overly dramatic? Well, actually, no. That is how she would think at eighteen. But I need to add something where she reflects at you know twenty eight, twenty nine, thinking that is you know that is preposterous. Um, I shouldn't I shouldn't have been thinking like that. And I reread my old diaries as well to to get a sense of how does one speak, how did one think, um, and hopefully I, I hope that comes across in the novel uh, how you know this is a woman who is is quite lost and is trying to locate herself and locate her former self within you know her current self wow yeah so it's really been it's been in the making for many many years this yeah, yes and i keep coming back to i sort of wrote it very quickly um when i was 19 and then i i let it sit for years but this this heroine's voice of lily kerrigan it just kept creeping back at me. And, you know, obviously I think when one writes a first novel, um, especially in first person, there are, you know, obviously autobiographical details in there. Um, there, you know, there are, there are elements of myself, but she is, she is not me at all. And the way she speaks is not the way I speak. Um, so it is, it is interesting to keep coming back to her and keep thinking, you know, where, where, where is she even now? What is she doing? Uh, what does she do once the novel's over? Um, I kept, she stayed with me and I always wanted her to have this very caustic voice, um, very much in line with the Holden Coalfield, uh, where you, you feel both repelled and yet entranced by this, by this person. And you think they're unreliable. They're probably quite nasty. They're, you know, she's not a likable character at all times, but I, I hope, uh, 
and I mean, characters like that are always very divisive, but I do hope that most readers are able to see that there's a, um, you know, there's an empathy there, that there's a sensitivity behind that wall of um, sort of cold, sarcastic remarks, which she makes all of the time. <laughs> <laughs> Great. It's, it's really interesting that you said that she's kind of followed you through the ages. Yes. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. Maybe she's like your alter ego. I, I think so. <laughs> she's, much, she's much cooler than I am. I mean, you know, not like terribly. I think that is the thing. If you, if when you write a first novel and it is to some degree based on yourself. So, you know, there are autobiographical details in there. She is, um, you know, she's from a, a similar place to where I am in America. She also grew up in a very strict Catholic, uh, you know, society and family. Uh, so th- those those elements I gave to her. Um, but she's she evolved from there to be just so different from my, from myself. Um, and she's mm. always, you know, smoking and drinking and having, um, you know, going to parties. And I wasn't really doing that at 18, 19. <laughs> yeah. Certainly not the well, glamorous, time, not so. the glamorous exactly. parties that she goes to. I, you know, I think that was, that was sort of a, fantastical but it was trying to also understand right how would it have looked to have been 1819 in this different era Mm. Um, and I think because I was in a place where um, where I'm from and then where I went to university in America was a a Catholic university and it was very it was very conservative it was very it felt of a different time so when I was reading something like the country girls or when I came to read the bell jar which I will say I read that after I'd written the first draft and I thought, what's the point? She's already done it perfectly. Um, that, that sort of voice, but I related so much more to that than I did to sort of teen dramas that were going on of my time. Um, because these issues, and I was even speaking to a friend about this last, uh, last night who gone to university with me as well. And this place was a place where, you know, girls would sit around and we, you know, they would talk about, oh, I want my husband to have this job and I want our summer home to be here. And, you know, I'm going to be married by this age. We want to have these children. They wanted to look and do these things. And I thought, where am I? Have I taken a time yeah. machine? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, yes. we could do amazing things ourselves. Um, exactly. So it felt, it yeah. felt very strange. And also even things like the, the novel deals quite frankly with sex and that loss of virginity. And again, those that that comes from a place of what was happening um, in my own life when I was that age. Where again, we were sitting mm. around in these in these you know on our beds and having these conversations about, oh well, I would never lose it unless da da da. And it was you know it was again this sort of nineteen forties nineteen fifties mentality of oh you save yourself, and yeah. it was <laughs> it was ridiculous. And looking back on it, it's it's it can be quite uh, it can be quite difficult to explain to people, um, but that is the world I I knew. And I think, you know, the novel also deals with, um, you know, sexual assaults as well. And that was something that was, you know, happening rampantly, um, you know, many places, many universities, but especially where I was because we, we couldn't really talk about sex. And so because we couldn't talk about sex in a, you know, a good way, in a positive way, um, and it was always quite in a seedy way, we weren't able to uh, speak about sexual assault and rape and, you know, help one another through that. We, we, you know, it felt like this, again, this, this society of women who sort of closed ranks on one another when you tried to, um, to speak. And yeah. I, I do think that is changing um, in the last so many years, which is really, really positive, uh, even in these, you know, sort of more conservative sectors. But it, there's, there's still quite a lot 
of work to do. And um, I'm really, I'm really hoping, you know, like a novel such as this, or there's lots of other novels that are now being published, um, which are dealing with these subjects, will will help to push that more to the light and yes. give young women who are in places where it's not being discussed openly uh, access to at least experience uh, literature and stories and know that they're not alone. Because again, I, I think that would have helped me a lot when I was when I was that age. Oh, that's brilliant. Honestly, yes, Suzanne, honestly, it's absolutely incredible. I think uh, you have to, young women have to have that as well. Because as you said, I think there still is a lot of work to be done, unfortunately. Um, and I think people, although it is very progressive now, I think it's um, it's really important to have people like yourself um, putting these stories out there and, and putting young women um, in the forefront as well of those characters to change something about it um which is which is great um and i just wanted to um ask something about your title yes. actually um so essence of hour it's really like quite a compelling title how did that come about is that something that was in the book anyway or um so my editor actually found it i will say so i, I work in publishing as well and i always tell people i'm terrible at titles it, some people can do it <laughs> so quickly uh you know you give them something like oh the, go with this so uh my editor had found it and she uh, had looked through the map, she was reading the manuscript and she said, this character mentions Fitzgerald a lot. So it makes sense to me that perhaps we should go with a Fitzgerald quote, because I'd also said to me, this novel should function as we should pretend it was published in the 1950s and that this is Lily Kerrigan writing it, not myself. And I think she would pick, um, a literary title, much like Fitzgerald does with Tender as the Night, um, which is, you know, from yeah. the John Keats poem, or you know, lots of Shakespeare quotes become uh, titles as well. So she had found a, a sort of short list of Fitzgerald quotes, and that one seemed to fit perfectly for a few reasons. One is because it's from a poem that he wrote uh, when he was at Princeton, and it actually also appears in um, The Side of Paradise as well. And that was his his first novel, which is, you know, again, slightly, um, you know, alter ego of himself, uh, very precocious debut, uh, which was you know, very famous when it came out of its time. So that that felt quite perfect. And also it deals with this imagery of what is lost and uh it has there's a line in about you know pressing the flower and that that image does come up in the book uh, several times this this the savoring and what is what is lost in in the savoring that once you know once moments happen it becomes memory and we can never we can never you know recover it but we can never trust what's happened because we only have our memory to rely upon yeah, so true. No, it's a brilliant, really compelling title. So I was like, oh, sounds really good. <laughs> um, it is. It is. It, it's very in keeping with the the voice of the character. I really like that. Yeah. And you mentioned that um, you work in publishing. You have for a while now. Yes. Uh, what was it? Um, what was the process in terms of you'd written this book and then you went to Valley Press? Did you have to? go on submission? So yes, yeah, so I um, they just had an open submission period, which was fantastic. Okay. Uh, but I have, um, you know, I've, I've worked in publishing, so, but I've never worked in literary publishing, actually. I've always kept myself quite separate from working on the side that I want to produce. I think one of the reasons is probably sheer jealousy. <laughs> um, it's, you know, it's, it's also fiercely competitive. And yeah. I, I think it, it helps to separate one's, uh, you know, sort of personal life out from what they do in work. So I've worked in um, 
you know, a few different, few different sort of sectors, um, started in academic sort of play publishing and then was in business publishing for a bit and now I'm in children's publishing, but it's always been, uh, sort of educational or nonfiction that I've gravitated toward so that I could concentrate on the more literary side, um, when I'm writing. Um, but Valley Press, it had a, as I said, it had an open submission window, um, sort of in the, the few months leading up to COVID. And I submitted and then found out in the midst of COVID, um, that first lockdown, um, that I had been accepted. So that was, you know, terribly exciting. Okay. And it came out and I know it was, it was very strange as well because it was April Fool's Day that I received the message, <laughs> <laughs> and I was, you know, and I, you know, I've been, like, like most people who are writers, you submit things to lots of people for, yeah. you know, quite some time and you're rejected and then you get, you know, partial submissions accepted and then, yeah. and then you get rejected or sometimes you never hear anything and you know you you get your hopes up um so much and then to then have it happen is you know it was it was incredible mm. um and it's still it's still a bit i can't quite believe that it's out uh <laughs> even even now it's been several months um but it came it came out in february which again was during the third lockdown, um, which was, you know, it was, it was strange as well because we could, I couldn't be with people. So it was just my, my husband and myself in my flat, um, you know, having like a zoom launch. Um, uh, but that was great as well because, because I'm from America, it allowed me to, uh, you know, invite and incorporate people in my life who've been so important that, you know, simply would never have been able to come over to London yeah. or something like this. So I do, mm. I do think there's a really great positive that has come out of this, um, with these zoom events and, you know, keeping it more interactive, mm. uh, for an international audience. And yeah. it was nice though, once the, once the lockdown lifted and I was able to go into the bookshop and see it in physical person, because I think that's in my, in my mind's eye, what I'd always imagined growing up yeah. as little girls, yeah. like, Oh, I'm going to run to the shop. And, um, you know, there it's going to be on the shelf, but it is, it is funny because I, because I work in publishing as well, there's some tricks of the trade I know as well. So people were messaging me saying, why have I pre-ordered the book and now I'm receiving it in January, but it doesn't come out till February. And I would mm. say, well, that's because of stocks available unless the book is embargoed and very few books are ever embargoed. They have to be the new Margaret Atwood or the new, you know, sort of big title. Yeah. Um, because bookshops yeah. don't like it. Uh, so it has to be, publishers have to be very selective when they do it. Um, but then, you know, the book will sort of have a soft launch and start and start be appearing in bookshops. So it isn't, it isn't usually that magical moment of, you know, <laughs> you know 9am, the yeah. bookshop opens on the day it's published and it's there for the first time. And, again, and of course that does happen with some books. Um, but it was, it was nice to be able to explain that to people because that is one of the biggest questions I've answered over the years for authors of well, why is my book already in the shop? I didn't think it was publishing till next month. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was nice to, to have that, you know. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Knowledge. Oh, that's brilliant. And, and you've had quite... Um 
the educational journey throughout your life. You've studied literature and and travelled um, and and studied internationally as well, um, and obviously you studied philosophy as well. Can you let us know how that, this maybe helped you um, write? Yeah, so I think I had studied English and philosophy at university and it definitely, the philosophy helped because I'm, I'm actually terrible at philosophy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's my, Great. My philosophy professor told me. Um, in a sense of, you know, I do not have the sort of analytical, logical mind um, of, of what makes a great philosopher. Um, but there's also, you know, a different discipline of philosophy, which is what I was very attracted to, of the more literary side. So that's more um, the tradition of existentialism and Camus um, and, you know, Simone de Beauvoir, who is my my hero, uh, <laughs> and um, also Plato in many ways, uh, that this is more, it, there's, there's a literary turn to it uh, and trying, and I, that's what I love about philosophy is when it, it goes away from being these tracks, which are very, um, you know, only to really be read by people who are um, in the know about that to more open uh, to anybody can read it. So again, thinking about Simone de Beauvoir, she wrote novels, which are, they are philosophical and they are, you know, very um, openly feminist and, you know, discussing ideas, but ultimately they're also a novel. So that framed what I wanted to write to make it uh, have that sort of meat of um, being based in uh, philosophy. And as I said, I was at a Catholic university, so you you have to study philosophy when you're at a Catholic university, at least for sort of introduction <laughs> courses. And yeah. also you have to... Um, it's so that you can prove the existence of God, basically. That's the, that's why I do it. <laughs> Seriously. Um, and so there's also a lot of St. Augustine and Aquinas in there as well. So I think a lot, that really informed me um, and just the way, the way I think. And that's something that I can never, even though I'm not a practicing Catholic anymore, I, that sort of way that your mind has been formed is, is difficult to detach yourself from. So this idea of, course, of, of yeah. sin and uh, culpability. So that, that helped me write the novel as well and think, right, this is a girl who is, is also trying to break away from the church, but how can she, how can she unlearn, uh, you know, thinking about the world through the St. Augustine lens and uh, which also goes back to, to Plato in a way too. So that, that is definitely there. Um, but also you, you mentioned the international scope as well. So then when I was a university student in America, uh, my professor uh, was actually through the philosophy department that they recommended that I go to Oxford uh, for a year to study. And that's why I now live here. Um, <laughs> and I had never, you know, I never, uh, well, I've been outside the country, but it's not really fair. I grew up next to the Canadian border. So that's not, uh, okay. it's, you know, it's not really particularly international travel if you're next to it. Um, but I had never really left the country before. So it was my first international flight. And, you know, it opened my eyes and it's, you know, it was incredible to, to live in a, a different, in a different society. Um, but, you know, to see the similarities between America and, uh, you know, the UK, and I think they are becoming much, much more similar, um, alarmingly so. And yeah. I think that's one of the things I'm probably interested in exploring more in future novels is that, that sort of transatlantic um, you know, narrative and uh, how 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 similar they are as countries, and that sort of loss, you know, mm. miss that comes with that. 
Yes. Yeah. What do they call it? The, yeah. the special relationship. In, yeah, in, yeah, spe- yeah. The special friendship or the something. Special, special yeah. relationship. <laughs> I know it's very, it's very, it's very bizarre. But even, I mean, this sounds quite you know, sort of colloquial. But even things like when I first came over nine years ago, I would go to the um, to the shop to buy groceries, and I simply couldn't get you know I had to learn how to bake from scratch then because you couldn't get all these mixes which in America you go into a a grocery store and you have like 50 different prepackaged Betty Crocker mixes and (laughs) in the UK you just didn't have that so I learned to bake from scratch and now I go in and there's not 50 but you know they're definitely it has expanded from you know two or three to now I think there's like 10 or something so I see Mm. I I mean that's a really strange way of explaining it (laughs) no it's true though it is true it's that it's that sort of oh America is continually creeping in I think getting its um getting its sort of ways uh yeah no yeah definitely I think um I was amazed when I first went to LA the supermarket was like just an absolute playground yes. for me. it was just like the amount of there was a whole aisle just dedicated to cheese and I was like this is incredible like there was so many different types of cheese I was just like there's squeezy cheese I think it was amazing and over here it just wasn't the same you couldn't get as much or there wasn't as much variety yeah. um and now it's sort of yeah as you said it's creeping in there um as well but to to go back to your writing and um, you mentioned and and less about cheese yeah. <laughs> um, you um you mentioned that you potentially um in other novels or when when writing um novels in the future you'd want to talk about x y and z and um, are you currently writing a second novel at the moment? Is that something that you're working on? Yes, I am. I am working. I am on a second draft. I'm hoping it does not take 10 years again. <laughs> I that was part of the process. It was all exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. So I am. And it is, is exhilarating working on um, a second novel. And, you know, it's obviously, it's, it's a bit scary because you do think, right, am I you know, did it, was it just freshman luck? Was it, you know, that sort of everything inside of me, I did it once. Can I do it again? Mm-hmm. So I think it is giving yourself much more discipline to do it a second time. Um, but also there is a confidence I think that comes with having been published, which sounds ridiculous and silly, but it does give you a validation and it does yeah. say yeah, of it moves you. And I'm still moving into this sort of mental, um, you know, idea of, right, I, I can consider myself a writer now. This isn't, this isn't, you know, just a hobby that I, I scribble away when I get home from work. I can take this very seriously. And that shift in telling myself, yes, you, you can do that and you should be doing that um, has been something I've been working through for the last year. But it's, it, it's, it's, it's wonderful when it is happening. It obviously is, and I'm sure many people um, that you've interviewed and people listening will, you know, um, relate to this it is difficult to write when you're working full-time and yeah. the way I do it is I just have to have a structure so if you if you keep missing days then you you get this feeling of right now I only have two hours and I have to you know be the best writer ever in these two hours because I haven't written in several weeks and this is it yeah. and sometimes that you might put that on a Saturday or Sunday and it's just so pressurizing and no good writing is going to come from that so if yeah. you develop a routine and sometimes the routine I have at the moment because of work, because commuting's opening back up as well now, um, you know, sometimes it is, it is 15 minutes, but if, even if I only get that 15 minutes of an evening, I have to do something because it keeps you, it keeps you warm. 
Yeah. So that when you do yeah. have a longer stint, you can dive back in. Um, because the, the sort of the first few minutes or sometimes the first few hours of writing can be you know, pulling teeth. But once I think once you get into a pace of it and you get rid of that, that self-doubt and that self-hatred saying you can't do this, because that's a huge part of it as well as combating that. And you just get into writing in your zone. I think it you, you kind of get into the flow of of creation, yeah. um, and that that's from, certainly happened on the first draft of what I'm writing at the moment. Um, but you know, going back and doing the second draft, I, I think people. I think working as an editor is is a, a unique position as well because uh, lots of people, especially some of the books I've worked on previously, like a business book, people were really only writing one draft. And the second draft of them is, you know, changing a comma or changing a word. And that's... <laughs> Lucky them. Yes. Yeah. And they're like, oh, Literally. I hope the book's okay. And you're like, you know, well, you only wrote one draft of it, but okay, <laughs> that's fine. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll write the second draft for you. Um, but the, when you... So I think people have a misconception or you watch a film and there's a writer in it, or even you read a book that a writer is writing and they know yeah. the process yeah. they somehow still magically do it in one draft films uh, always do it wrong and i'm yes. always triggered watch and i'm like that's not how it triggered works. Like, this is not how the industry works i know they always like type the end and then it's like you know <laughs> yeah. rushed out to the printer and it's on the shelf the next day <laughs> yeah. um Absolutely. so i think it is understanding right a second draft a third draft you know subsequent drafts they are there's a lot of heavy lifting actually a lot of the writing takes place during those drafts of mm. redeveloping for me i mean different writers work different ways i mean i've listened to alan hollinghurst speak about the way he writes and he writes i think quite meticulously where he takes years to write a novel and he painfully labors over every scene so that he can do it actually in very few drafts because he's doing a lot of the work then i'm of the of the sort of the way I do it is I, I write very, I have to write very, very fast and I have to yeah. get it out there and I have to not plan too much on that first draft so that I can see the way characters explode and that they go off on one another. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I really like dialogue as well. So it's, it's getting a sense of, you know, how would people speak to each other? If I'm starting a scene, I have no idea sometimes where it's going to go. So in those next few drafts, it's, you know, getting that maintenance into it, thinking, was that the right thing? you know, are the people being too repetitive? Are people's speech patterns too similar to one another is one thing I look for a lot. Um, but also, you know, kind of, I'll have a sense of what characters' backstories are. Um, but often I, I'm waiting for them to reveal to me what, what's important to them. And then I, I go back and I make, um, I usually write, uh, so for this particular novel, I would write out diary entries from the other characters as well. So <laughs> I could get a sense of, you know, who they were. I think that's a difficult yeah. part about first person narration is sometimes um sometimes people think it's easier because you, you they think it's just stream of consciousness so you're just writing out your own story um and that'd be very boring if it if it was that and uh it would you know suffer as a novel because you're even in this particular case this heroine is very self-absorbed she one of probably her flaw is that she's unable to understand other people she's un, unable to let in the fact that they are as complex of human beings as she is so yeah. I have to know, though, that they are complex human beings. So when she says something about them, I know the truth behind that. And I have to know in my mind, right, if the, if the novel was written from this character's perspective, how would it read differently to how it's currently written? Yeah. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 yeah a lot of sense. And um, speaking of, we've spoken a lot about your book and your writing and things like that. 
only a little bit about your work as an editor. Yes. If it's a very competitive area of publishing, and if people listening were interested in becoming an editor, what advice would you give them for that career path? I think if you want to be an editor, you you have to know why you want to be an editor. And again, this goes back to this sort of fictional idea I think people have of an editor being the Maxwell Perkins with Fitzgerald and Hemingway yeah. and you know igniting their genius. That most of the time is not what it looks like to be an editor. Um, and there, there, are diff- there are different types <laughs> yeah. of editors, actually. And I started off on a path to be a commissioning editor, mostly. And that is when you are looking at bringing in new manuscripts and um, signing off and signing people up. Right. And that can be, you know, that, that lots of people, that's more what editing is now. Um, and lots of people love that. But I really like the desk editing side of it, where you are sitting down and working very firmly with an author or, you know, your, your sort of editorial and design team to make that book come to fruition and, you know, editing at every stage. Um, and you get much more hands-on with the text. If you work for a smaller press, you, you may do all of those jobs. You may wear every single hat. Um, and I, I have done that before. I've also sold foreign rights. <laughs> so I've, I've done okay. a lot um, in, in sort of smaller places. And I think that probably is a, a good bit of advice. Is So understand why you want to be an editor and what you want to do. Are you, do you want to be an editor because you want to work with language? Do you want to be an editor because you want to work with authors? Um, perhaps you want to do both. And understand that it's not a career simply because you love books. Um, you have to understand that if you love books, publishing will kill your love of books usually. <laughs> um, so you have to go in with a, right, so I've always thought, well, I love books, but I love, if I have to work in business, I want to work on a product that I do love and I believe in and I want to get out there in the world. So understand that, I believe, and then also be really open. And I think especially sometimes young people trying to get into publishing, they don't understand how many publishers there are. And they think that there's Random House and Penguin and Faber or um, in America, Simon & Schuster, which perhaps won't be around for much longer. Who knows what will happen there? Uh, (laughs) So, and then then there's the dream job. And those jobs are very, very competitive. Um, And, you know, know, I've worked in jobs before where you do feel like anybody could do this job and it's so competitive for, you know, a certain type of person. And the minute you leave, they'll just get your, you know, sort of replacement. And it feels a bit like all about Eve. It's a bit creepy. Uh, (laughs) um, I think it can be a really great thing to start by working at smaller presses, because as I said, you could get every, every sort of experience at a smaller press. Um, and you probably will rise the the ranks a little bit faster and have a little bit more autonomy quickly um, because you'll be able to you'll you'll essentially just be needed at lots of different stages. So that that's a great way. Um, and just being open to working on a list that you may not may not be your dream list and taking those skills because every bit of experience is is helpful to getting your foot in the door and moving you along to hopefully getting your dream job, I would say in the future. Yeah, that's really great advice. No, thank you. That's brilliant advice. And I have one final question, (laughs) which is, um, which is a really, well, I think it's an exciting question. Um, And also my favorite question to ask everyone. So if you were, um, were to be marooned on a desert island with nothing but a book to provide you with love and entertainment, (laughs) um, what would that book be? And, and why? So I thought about this and gosh, I'll have to go with um, Brideshead Revisited by Evelyn Waugh. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. because one, it's a book I can't quite read in a day. So I think that's important. <laughs> I think it has yes, to be. Uh, it's, it's a little bit too long to read in a day. Um, but I have read it twice and I've, I've watched the mini series with um, Jeremy Irons many times. So yeah. I know, I, know yeah. I do not tire of it. Uh, and I, you know, I go back and each time I find something new in it. And that was such a huge inspiration to me writing this book. Uh, and I, I also should say, I don't even like Evelyn Wall as a writer and any other book either. So it's, it's strange that this book speaks to me so much, but it is about, you know, a very messy Catholic family. Um, so that I find that interesting. I find it interesting how these how these characters do gravitate toward the church, um, toward the mm. end of the book. So that, that I get something out of, and I think I'll probably get more out of that when I'm older as well, trying to understand why a certain character goes back to the church on his deathbed. Um, but also I think as a, as a stylist, as a writer, it's, it's, you know, fascinating to understand how he, how he plays those tricks with the narrative. So you, every time I read it, I think the tragedy won't happen. I think, you know, Sebastian will not descend yeah. into alcoholism. I think that, you know, maybe Julia and um, Charles will, will you know, have a happy ending. And I don't think it's spoiling to say those things because you know that from the first chapter that things are not going to end well, that this yeah. is a man who's coming back to this place for a third time in his life. And, but you, for, you forget that and you keep thinking oh maybe things will work out so i think it's it's how does he how does he do that how does he suspend you that even when you know it you believe in it um and you those characters are so lovable so i think i could quite happily read that again and again for the rest of my life and still learn as a writer from reading it yeah yeah. Uh, sounds like it appeals to you as a writer and as an editor yes yeah it's, it's laid out it's it, but as I said, it is it is strange because I don't like Evelyn Waugh's other novels, <laughs> and I, I I think I think it was one of the best novels of the of the twentieth century. It's a classic, uh, but it is a classic. He didn't yeah. like it then after um, after it was published because he saw it as so different from his other work. Oh, but okay. I think that I think oh. that's a good thing. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, amazing. Yeah, that's a, I, I love it when we get classics on the Desert Island list. Um, it's a really good answer, uh, and it's a great book. Thank you so much for coming on, Susan, and, yeah, and sharing your experience you. and, and your journey with us. For anyone listening, if you want to keep up with everything that Susan is doing, you can follow her on Instagram at Susan Ferber Writes, and you can get the book, Essence of an Hour. It's out now. Get it in all the, all the usual places, Waterstones, Amazon, Foils, everywhere. To make sure you don't miss an episode of this podcast, you can follow us on Twitter at Right and Wrong UK and on Instagram at Right and Wrong podcast thanks again susan it's been such a pleasure chatting with you thank you so much for having me oh thank you susan it's been brilliant and thanks to everyone listening uh we will catch you on the next one bye-bye join us today during the jeep celebration event right now get 20 percent below msrp for an average of 15,178 under msrp on the purchase of a 2023 jeep grand cherokee overland 4xe or summit 4xe not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.